Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. We're beginning, uh, we'll dive into our teaching here, and we're continuing with a teaching, What Do I Believe? And I think, man, what a perfect question to ask right now in, this, in these strange days, this moment in which we find ourselves right now. What a perfect question. What do I believe? This is a series that we've been doing for a number of weeks at Renewal. Um, we talked about the church. We talked about humanity. Last week, we talked about sin and, and sin nature, how we we're created with a good created nature and how that's been corrupted by sin. And this week, we're talking about the fundamental belief of Christianity. It's going to be really cool. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus. And when I, when I think about all of the things that we're undergoing right now, again, I think, what a perfect time to be asking the question, what do I believe? When we're encountering these, this new, these new feelings, I don't know, have you felt strange the last couple of weeks? I have. I mean, it's been kind of, kind of weird. Um, there, there's an article that's been making the rounds. Maybe you've seen it. We've all been online more than we normally are online. So maybe you've already seen this article uh, from Harvard Business Review. It's an interview with one of the co-authors of the kind of the landmark study on grief, the five stages of grief. And one of the things that this, this guy says is he says, that strange thing you're feeling, that's grief. And even just the title of the article I found helpful. That discomfort you're feeling, discomfort you're feeling, he says, is grief. And the article cites those five now very well known, those famous things. There's denial, there's anger, there's bargaining, there's sadness, and there's acceptance, right? And uh, the author connects those things to our current moment. And, and here's a, a few of the quotes from that. Maybe denial in the coronavirus era looks like this. The virus won't affect me. There's anger. You're making me stay, co- you're making me stay home and you're taking away my activities, There's bargaining. Okay, if I social distance for two weeks, everything will be better, right? There's sadness. I don't know when this will end. And finally, there's acceptance. This is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed. Man, I I don't know if if you're like me, if you've said one or more of those kinds of things over the last couple of weeks, I have. Um, if, If those kinds of things resonate with you, it's because we share this experience. What what a strange moment we find ourselves in, where we share this experience, even just two or three weeks ago, I wouldn't be able to say to, to the globe, you know, how uh, comments about what it feels like to be a homeschool parent, comments about what it feels like to be inside and trying to be, become a remote worker or being a Zoom ninja or all the things that we've had to learn so quickly. I wouldn't be talking in this kind of scenario, like broadcasting our church service in, in this way. And now, suddenly, this rapid change, we all have this shared experience. And again, I come back to our theme question. What do I believe? Because what we believe, it, it directly applies to all of life, and especially to life in a time like this, like a time of crisis or a time of strangeness, a time of grief, a time of suffering. What we believe really, really matters. Today, we're looking at Jesus, the most central thing about Christian belief. We're looking at Jesus. We're asking, uh, what do Christians say 
they believe about Jesus? What do Christians mean when they say they believe in Jesus? And we're going to be doing this. I mean, Jesus is a big subject, right? So we're going to be doing this in a very particular way. We're not going to be so much looking at Jesus biographically. Not, not, we're not really asking who questions. We're not going to be looking at Jesus like motivationally, asking why questions. We're going to really specifically say, what did Jesus do? What did he accomplish? Why does it matter, right? So what is the work of Jesus? Uh, sometimes the, the classic word for this is atonement, uh, the Christian word, uh, atonement, his, his substitutionary atonement for us. What did Jesus do? Why is this such a big deal to Christians? And in order to do that, we're looking at Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22. If you've got a paper Bible, you can open it up. Keep it open at, at Genesis 22. If you don't, on our, that online platform, if you're at renewalchicago.online.church, there's a tab there where you can look at um, the, the scripture. You can just look up Genesis 22. It's the first book of the Bible, easy to find. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to look at the first 14 verses. Genesis 22, the first 14 verses. Let's um, read it together. I have it printed out here. Uh, it says... After these things, and we're going to talk about those things. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which God had told them. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, and to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is God's word. In this passage, uh, you, you might have noticed, I said we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about what he has done, like why that matters, right? Um, you may have noticed the passage never mentions Jesus. So if we're talking about Jesus, how are we, why are we using this passage? So it, this is going to be our framework from today, uh, uh, for today. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at how history foreshadows Jesus' work. And second, how Jesus' work supplies real resources for real life. 
So how history foreshadows Jesus's work, number one, and number two, how Jesus's work supplies real resources for real life. Jesus, as you know, as you likely know, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, Jesus is central to Christianity. So, uh, I mean, right there, the, Jesus' most famous title, the Christ, is right there in the word, Christianity, right? Jesus is central to Christianity, so what a great time. If you're part of our church, to, to consider, again, what you believe about Jesus. If you're new to Christianity, if you're not sure what you believe, what a great way to just peek and look in and ask, what do Christians believe? Why is Jesus such a big deal? This is, this is what we're looking at today. And history, first, history foreshadows Jesus' work. Um, Genesis 22 uh, forms, uh, like, like a number of passages in the Bible, Jesus, uh, Genesis 22 forms an announcement for Jesus' future work. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked and talked and taught and healed and performed miraculous signs generations after Genesis was written, right? But Genesis 22 foreshadows, it points to, it announce, announces Jesus' future work. And uh, let's look again at verse, uh, the very first phrase, the very first verse that we read, after these things. This is interesting. After these things. After what things? So Genesis 22, we're picking up in the middle of an already existing story, right? We're following Abraham. Abraham is uh, somebody who God called to himself in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I have, uh, Abraham, I, I want you to go. I, I want to make a place for you. And, he, and God makes these radical promises of provision for Abraham. Just these crazy promises about how he's going to lead Abraham, how he's going to multiply Abraham, Abraham's family, how he's going to create an entire people, a nation out of Abraham, how, how God's blessing to Abraham is going to be so abundant that it's going to overflow and bless all the people in the world, right? So this is in Genesis chapter 12. And then God over time, as Abraham trusts and walks with God, God continues to give promises, and, he's, and he promises Abraham a son because, again, Abraham's offspring, offspring are going to create a new people, a new, a new nation, right? So what we can see here, just real quickly, is how God, when he calls somebody to himself, there's a cumulative education that kind of takes place. God first calls Abraham and says, go to this new place that I'm going to show you. And then he, he calls Abraham into trust over years and years of not having a son. It, God is calling Abraham to trust him that he will provide a child for him and his wife, Sarah, right? And see, and then you get all the way to this point, Genesis 22, where we are today, and, and Isaac has been born, and uh, Abraham has moved, he has trusted every step of the way. We see this cumulative education from God for Abraham, and, and here he is, and God raises the stakes even higher. There's this, there's this incredible instruction from God. Take your son, your one and only son, God even the phrasing that God uses, he's like, he's um, highlighting how radical this, this instruction is. Take your son, your one and only son, the one you love, that one, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, um, this is just so startling for us, for me, and when I read it, 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 just, it sounds so strange and even offensive that, that God would, would say something like this. Uh, there's an Old Testament scholar named um, David Murray who, who says, 
you know, the original readers of this passage had such a tremendous advantage over us as modern readers. When, when we read this, every step of the way, it's something new and culturally strange, right? Every step of the way. So we don't, we don't move we, to new places and pioneer new land and, become, and, and live a nomadic lifestyle. We don't uh, understand the sacrificial system. But he said, for those people, for the original readers, so much of this was normalized for them, particularly the sac- sacrificial system. They, they grew up with it. They understood it. It wasn't strange for them to think God demands sacrifice. It's, it's like, for them, it's like, of course he demands sacrifice. That's Part of how we relate with God is he demands sacrifice. It wasn't unusual for them to consider um, God not just demanding sacrifice, but even being particular about what that sacrifice should be, right? So the point is this. The original readers didn't have so many layers to move through like we do. We, we don't practice, most of us, the Passover. These, the original readers practice it every year and all of the other feasts that had to do with the sacrificial system, Right? So the original leaders, readers, it was normal, 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 all the way up until God said, your son, offer your son. That was the point where they thought, this, this is unprecedented. What is God doing here? What is going on? For us, all of it is strange. And then it gets even more strange when we get to the part where, where God says, offer Isaac. Now, um, when we read this, then we see after this remarkable, just startling, shocking, scandalous instruction from God, we see remarkably that Abraham obeys. The next verse, Abraham, he hires hands, he gathers supplies, he packs his bags, and he tells Isaac they're going to make an offering. They're on their way. Uh, as they near the destination, uh, Abraham uh, and Isaac take the final kind of leg of the multi-day journey on their own. It's just, it's just remarkable. Um, one biographer of Abraham, there's a book just simply called Abraham, and in this biographer, he, he says what's so interesting about this story is not just what it says. You know, the, the instruction from God is so unusual. It's not just what it says, it's also what it doesn't say. You know, there's so many things missing from the passage that we read. Don't you want to know what Abraham was feeling? Don't you want to know? I do. Like, what was he feeling? What did he tell Sarah, uh, his wife? What, they're, they're on a multi-day journey, and we've got this little tiny fragment of a conversation between him and Isaac, right? What did they talk about? How did they interact those other days? What did he tell the hired hands that were with him? What, what, was, what were the mechanics? How did this happen? How in the world did Isaac get on the altar? How is he bound? You know, I don't know. It, do, it doesn't say. And in the, this, this biographer of Abraham says, what we have here is less cinema and more a succession of stills. It's a composition of still images in a way. And what we must say is the reason it's prepared for us this way is because the Bible is not trying to answer my questions about what Abraham felt. It's not trying to answer my questions about the mechanics of how this all went down. What it is trying to do then is give us these particular still images. And I must ask, why? What's going on here? What am I supposed to see and perceive? So let's look through the stills of the composition together. Okay, so you've got very first verses. God says, take your son and and offer him. You know, interestingly, uh, Tabidi Anya Bwile, he's a a pastor, preacher, I think in the D.C. area, if I remember right. He, He says... It's interesting that God doesn't say, take your son and kill him. He says, take your son and 
offer him. Good insight there from Tabidi. Uh, so this is the first scene. Take your, only son, your one and only son and offer him. Scene two, Abraham cuts the wood, saddles the donkey, and goes. Scene three, the third day, um, Adam, or Adam, Abraham and Isaac are approaching their destination. Uh, scene uh, three, the, 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 on the final ascent, Abraham takes the knife and the coals. Isaac carries the wood on his back. The next scene, uh, the one recorded tiny little dialogue between father and son. Isaac's like, hey, father. Abraham says, yes, my son. Isaac says, um, what about the offering? <laughs> Aren't we forgetting something, basically? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. The, the next scene, Isaac is bound and on the altar, and the knife is raised. It's in the air. And then the climactic scene, the angel, the voice from God's angel comes and says, Abraham, and stop. Don't lay a hand. On the boy, and in the resolution, a ram is provided, right? So scene by scene, still by still, we have uh, God, like this, this, this narrative for us laid out, and it's not trying to answer some questions that we might have, but it is painting a very particular picture. And as Christians through the ages have looked at this, they've noticed two things over and over and over again. They've noticed the remarkable faith of Abraham. You know, later, uh, much later, there's an author, the author of Hebrews. There's a book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and it cites this very story, and it talks about Abraham's faith. And we should, we can and should notice Abraham's faith. But the other thing, and the more important thing, the thing that we're going to focus on today is it shows God's faithfulness. You know, in other words, Abraham was able to trust God so absolutely because God had proven himself absolutely trustworthy. Right? Again, this is part of Abraham's journey, like step by step uh, in, in his cumulative education from God. Like step by step, he's learning something more and he puts his trust and every time God proves himself trustworthy and it, nothing is different here. Uh, the author of Hebrews goes so far as to say when Abraham trusted God, it's like because he just believed something, something was gonna happen and some, somehow Isaac was gonna be rescued, was gonna be safe. And he was right. But he only found that by trusting God. Now, so we have here an absolutely trustworthy God. This is what I want us to do because we're focused on Jesus' work. I'm going to walk back through these scenes. And this time, I want us to think not just about Abraham and Isaac. I want us to think about Jesus. Now, if you're, again, if you're new to Christianity, then I, I'm going to help us Think about Jesus. If, if you're familiar with Christianity, some of this will begin coming naturally to you, I think, as, as we go through this. At least that was my experience when I first was uh, studying this passage. So we've got scene one. Again, scene one is take your one and only son, the one you love, and offer him. Now, consider Jesus. What did God do? What is the most famous verse probably in the Christian scriptures for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and offered him? right? Well, how, does, how does God the Father refer to God the Son in the New Testament? He says at, at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration, the, the voice of God the Father says, this is my Son, my one and only, the one whom I love, right? So we have this, this parallel between Isaac and Jesus. The next scene, Abraham cuts the wood. They saddle the donkey and they go. Uh, um, how did Jesus enter that final that final stretch of his 
his ministry, entering Jerusalem, knowing he would be betrayed, it was on what? The back of a donkey. The parallel continues. It's, it's really remarkable, my friends. We've got the next scene. On the third day, Abraham and Isaac are approaching their final destination. How did Jesus himself continually refer to his own crucifixion with his disciples? He always cited what would happen on the third day. You see, and we go to the next scene. Um, uh, where am I? The next scene, yes. On the final uh, ascent, Abraham takes the knife and the coals and he lays the wood on Isaac's back and Isaac carries, listen to this, this is unbelievable. Isaac is carrying the instrument of his own execution on his back, climbing the mount. How did Jesus begin the final excruciating trek with the instrument, the wood, the cross? of his own execution on his back. Then we have the next scene, the one recorded dialogue between father and son. Isaac says, my father. Abraham says, yes, my son. It's such a tender moment. Jesus, this is where the parallels between Isaac and Jesus begin to diverge radically. Isaac uh, turns to his father. His father answers, yes, my son. Jesus in the garden, the night he was betrayed, he turned to his heavenly father. He's, he's in agony. He's, he's sweating and weeping. And he turns to his father and for the first time in all of eternity, the heavenly father is not there for him. There is no answer, yes, my son. And then Abraham says something here that is the plainest and most particular, that is just the plainest pointing to Jesus and Jesus' work. When he answers Isaac, it makes me wonder, did, was Abraham all these days of this journey, was he playing over and over and over in his mind, what am I going to tell Isaac when he asks about the sacrifice? What, and he's wordsmithing in his mind. He's trying to figure out this, you know, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You're trying to figure out how to explain something difficult to your child. And his answer, Abraham's answer is remarkable. I think it's more remarkable than he even realized. He says, God himself will provide for the sacrifice. So Abraham unwittingly is prophesying how God will provide the ultimate sacrifice. This plain pointing to Jesus. Next scene, Isaac is laid upon the altar. Abraham raises the knife. But listen, the parallels are divergence now. The knife does not come down, right? Jesus is hung upon the cross and the hammer does come down and it nails him. To the cross. And then uh, the, the, the next scene, the angel calls out, do not lay a hand on the boy. And of course, in the scene with Jesus, much, much later, there was no voice that cried out except for Jesus's, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He was sacrificed. Isaac was not. There's this in- incredible picture. Jesus cries out because he is the offering. And then we have, after the climax, the ram. Um, Abraham looks over and he sees how God has provided. Again, pointing to the ultimate, the final, the, 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 the sacrificial lamb to end all sacrificial lambs, the one that would take care of all of the, the sin and death ultimately in the, in the world, the one that would provide a way for everyone, the, the sacrifice that was ultimate, All of human history hinges 
and the substitutionary work of Jesus. So much so. How do you, how do you talk about this? Every, so many times in the Old Testament, I don't want to give the impression that this is only happening in Genesis 22, but so many times in, in this history that's written for us, there are things, there are these historical events that happen and they're extraordinary on their own and they're made even more extraordinary because they're pointing to Jesus. Here in Genesis 22, it's also the same in the garden with Eve and Adam when, when, when God um, both punishes and blesses Adam and Eve after they disobey him. He, he very strongly says what Jesus, that, that in the future, he's gonna take care of this sin and death problem that we are encountering. So in the garden, later with the rescue of the great, with the great flood, in the confusion of Babel and the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt and the kingship of David and the voices of the prophets and the songs of the psalmists, all of this is pointing to the better and greater sacrifice that would come in Jesus. So it's, it's not an overstatement for me to say that all of this human history is hinging upon and pointing to Jesus's substitutionary work. Substitutionary as another great old word, Christians trying to describe what Jesus has done. He has made himself a substitute so that we, so that whoever believes doesn't die, right? This is so extraordinary, so fundamental. So that's point one. All of history is pointing, foreshadowing the work of Jesus. And we've arrived at point two. Now, don't worry, it's much shorter than point one. We needed to lay the, the groundwork. We needed to, to, to really understand I hope, at least begin to understand what, what, what is going on here with Jesus. Point one, history foreshadows Jesus' work. Point two, Jesus' work supplies real, real resources for real life. You know, I mentioned that there's a scholar that said, you know, the original readers had such an advantage because they understood the sacrificial system that wasn't like a stumbling block in understanding for them when they read the passage about Abraham and Isaac. You know, the flip side of that is modern readers, you and I, have, have an advantage that the original readers didn't have. We have the advantage of knowing the whole story, of being able to see how God fulfilled that remarkable uh, prophetic word from Abraham, that God himself will provide a sacrifice. We can see, we can read, we can understand, we can begin to understand the substitutionary work of Jesus. It's, it's remarkable. So we have here this tremendous story arc through all of history and perceiving and trusting and, and, and beginning to understand what Jesus has done makes, resonates in real ways in our lives. That's what I want to get at. It's not only and merely for something after death or, or, or for eternity, although, man, if it was only that, that would be amazing, right? But it's, it, it gives real answers for real life and even and especially in a time of grief, or suffering, right? If we're in an era, if we're in, in, in a moment right now in the world with, with a heightened grief and suffering, then man, we need resources to deal with that. And Jesus's substitutionary work provides real resources for real life. Let me give you some examples. Um, you know, I mentioned at the top that, that the Harvard Business Review article that cited the five stages of grief, right? In that article, the, the person who's interviewed, the, the, who worked with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, he, he says, you know, acceptance is where you want to be. And this is a quote. 
Of course, we're all gonna go through denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, but acceptance, quote, is where the power lies, okay? Now, he's right. Most, too many people don't get to the step of acceptance whenever they're encountering real hardship or real grief, right? And they don't get to that step, and so they're bouncing around denial and anger and bargaining and sadness, and it's just a miserable way to live. They don't get to acceptance. Now, with Jesus, with his substitutionary work, what that means is we can move to acceptance and beyond. What it also means is without Jesus and his substitutionary work, acceptance is the pinnacle. You know, in other words, acceptance of my circumstances, whatever they might be, that's, that's the most I can hope to achieve, is just accepting whatever my lot is with Jesus' work. It means that I can, be, I can confront the brutal facts and I can accept them and I can move on in hope in something greater, in something better. We can accept very hard truths, yes, and we can live with hope, empowered to do what's next because we are confident that God will provide. He has proved himself over and over again absolutely trustworthy. Again, consider Abraham. He was able to obey, to, to do the unthinkable, why? Because God had proven himself trustworthy over and over again. You know, the, the, the work of Jesus substituting himself on our behalf, it teaches us a lot of things, but one of the things it teaches us is that God stops at nothing to reconcile his people to himself. It, literally, he has stopped at nothing. He has given even himself, even his own life. Right? And so if that's true, I suddenly have tremendous resource to deal with hardship, suffering, grief in my real everyday life because I can deal with it knowing that my future is secure, that, that, that I don't have to merely be thinking about my, my survival or making it to the next paycheck or my whatever, fill in the blank, my kids. I can, think, I can confront all of those things and confront the brutal facts and think about Rest in that my future is secure. You know, my kids, a few years ago, they were um, in a chess club. <laughs> it sounds dorky. It was kind of dorky. They were in a chess club at uh, West Town Branch Library. It was an after-school thing. It was fun. Uh, there was a tutor there that was just teaching kids how to get better at chess. And with some of the older kids, one of the things that the tutor did was he would assign uh, points to different chess pieces. I mean, obviously, in, if you've played chess, you know there's not really points assigned to different pieces, but he did this because how do you teach somebody who's new at chess um, what, what move is worth making or what, what piece is worth sacrificing for another piece? And so he assigned point values to try to help kids, you know, figure that, those kind of moves out. So, for example, a pawn is one point. I don't remember the, exact, the actual... Um, point system, but something like a pawn is one point, a uh, bishop is five points, uh, a knight is six points, a uh, rook is seven points, a queen is nine points, right? You, so you see there's, there are different values for all of these pieces, which the question is, well, what's a king worth? You know, if a queen is nine, is a king 10? Because it's the most valuable. Is a, it's a king 20? Is it twice, more than twice as valuable, right? Um, and the answer is this. The, the tutor said, no, no, the king has infinite value. Why? If you lose the king, you lose the game. Now, now, here's the point. Me and you, we can have all kinds of pieces in place in our life that are right. 
We can, we can be moving uh, the pieces around on the board of our life, and we can be really proud of ourselves. Things can be looking up. Things can be great, right? I'm giving a best-case scenario. You're crushing it in your career. Your relationships are awesome. Your kids are amazing, whatever, right? All of those things, all of those pieces can be in place, but if you don't have the substitutionary work of Jesus, game over. It doesn't matter. Jesus is taking care of the fundamental needs of what we, uh, of, of humanity. And he's taking care of you and I. We both have the, the, like something. This is what Pastor Derek talked about last week. We have this self-centered bias. It's in our hearts. Our, our natures have been corrupted by sin. We can see it. You can look out the window. You can read the paper. You can look in the mirror. And you can see we have selfishness. And I, on my own, don't have the resources to deal with that sin. All of us, no matter who we are, (laughs) there is an impending and certain death that we are going to face. I don't have the resources on my own to deal with death. Jesus' substitutionary work deals with sin and death. Sin, how old-fashioned, you say. Death, how morbid, you say, maybe. <laughs> maybe you're thinking that, I don't know. No, no, no. I, it's not to be old-fashioned. It's not to be morbid. It's not to be dramatic. I am doing exactly what Harvard Business Review says I should do. I am moving to acceptance. acceptance. These are realities. I have a sin nature. I, I cannot do the things that I want to do. I, too often, I do the things that I don't want to do, right? This is how the Apostle Paul talked about it. There is a real, there's a reality with a self-centeredness and a self-absorption in, in, in our, all of us. And it's destructive to us and to others. And there's a reality about the death that we are facing. And Jesus' work covers both. It's an offering that pays for the sin and his resurrection conquers the death. Do you see? And he, he, can, he can legitimately promise resurrection, because he resurrected. Now, with the fundamentals covered, we can face real problems in the real world. We can be empowered to think about what's next. We can have hope. We can, we can lament and cry and cry out to God, but we can also trust him. I imagine, I don't, I don't know, I imagine that's what Abraham did that night. You know, it's what Job did. It's what many other heroes of the faith did. They, they, they didn't have a plastic sort of turn that frown upside down <laughs> approach or, or like just fake it till you make it joy. No, that's not Christian. No, they lamented for real and they trusted at the same time. They prayed and it, as they wrestled and worked, they, they talked to God, not in, not in just merely rote, repeated phrases. No, they, they cried out to him and wrestled through things with him and they, they hoped They had a real hope because God had always proven himself trustworthy. Man, these are real resources that make a real difference in real life. And it's because of Jesus' work. I want to conclude with a simple personal story. Um, When I was a kid, a a young kid, my my very, very favorite uh, thing to do, I think that's true. It probably was literally my favorite thing to do was go to my grandparents' house for Christmas and play with my cousins and see my aunts and uncles. We were, I had 14, 15 cousins. 
Uh, aunts and uncles were awesome. My grandparents were awesome. We were all cram-packed into a house that was way too small. I loved the chaos and the noise. I loved the games. I loved the football. I loved the presence. The presence. So my grandparents, they, um, they didn't have a ton of resources, right? But they, uh, but they were generous. And so they certainly didn't have enough uh, financial resources to buy all of their five kids and all of their five kids' spouses all nice presents and then all of their 15 grandkids nice presents. So my, my grandfather made this, um, uh, got a penny bowl. And he, he, a giant punch bowl, he filled with pennies. We called it the penny bowl. <laughs> for obvious reasons, he filled with pennies, and the gift every year was you, you take your hands, you dip them in the bowl, and you dump as many pennies as you can in one scoop into a bag, and that's, that's what you get. And man, I loved it. It was awesome. I still remember, I was the oldest of the cousins, so eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. I still remember the first time he brought out the penny bowl. And I, I, I just saw, I mean, it was like a bowl of treasure, I, I saw it, and I plunged my hands into the bowl, and I got as many pennies as I could, and I'm moving them over into this like little cloth bag that my grandmother had sewn for me with my initials on it, and I'm about to dump them into the bag, and my grandfather says, no, 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 and he pushes my hands over, opens them up, and they fall, the pennies fall back into the bowl. Now, <laughs> at, this time, at this point, I'm eight, eight-ish years old, and I'm looking up at him, and I'm like, should I cry? Should I run away? I didn't know what was going on. I, I just felt like, what, what is this? What, what's happening, right? He says, no, 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 like this. And he took my hands, and he put my, my, my cupped hands in his own cupped hands. And together, I, it, suddenly my hands looked so tiny and childlike against his big grandfather hands. And he took our hands together, and he put his hands into the penny bowl and brought out far more pennies and dumped in far more pennies into my, into my penny bag. Now, listen, when, when he said, no, 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 not like that, I, I wanted to run away. I wanted to cry. I didn't understand. What I thought was a gift suddenly looked like a cruel joke. But to my grandfather, he knew the end. He knew his intention, and it was good for me, right? And, and I did it. I didn't cry. I didn't run away. I put my hands in his, and, he, and I wound up what? With much more. I was much more enriched because of it. My grandfather took his hands and counted his hands as if they were my hands. Do you see? This is, this is the work of Jesus. I hope that I'm being clear. Jesus does this work and he counts it as if it is our own and it changes everything and we may not see it in the moment. We probably don't and it might be confusing like it was for Abraham, but he sees the whole picture and he sees the end and he knows what he has for us. His conclusion for us is much more enriching than our own plans for ourselves infinitely more so, manifestly more so. How much more, how much more is the Father's love for us than that silly example of, my, of the penny bowl at my grandparents' house? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. This is the work of Jesus. Let me pray for us.
Lord in heaven, we praise your name. We praise you for Jesus' work. He has done what we cannot, what I cannot. Would you help me? Would you help all of us, those who are listening, to cast off our self-reliance and trade it in for reliance on you? Cast off our, our, our stubborn self-orientation and orient our lives around you, the one who has given everything on our behalf. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.